Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Picking up with Nehemiah chapter 7, most of chapter 7 is simply a restatement of Ezra chapter 2. This was probably inserted here when we separated the one writing that used to be Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one written work together. When they separated them, they they messed up the timeline a little bit, and we think it's a little disjointed. And so they have picked up Ezra 2 and put it here to give us some context. In verses 5 through 73, Nehemiah plans a new census, um, and he finds a list of all those who have returned. In verses 1 through 4, before he launches into that, they now need to keep the city secure. Um, And he tells them, don't open the gate until it's well into the day and close it before dark. And he sets guards on it. Um, There are few people living in the city at this time. So he's beginning to focus on that goal of increasing city population. So he needs to find out who all is here, who all is living around here, who's living in the city and who needs to be living in the city. Um, And we need to keep safe while we are. We move on into chapter 8 with Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries. Ezra reads the law. Nehemiah brings the people together on sacred ground. Um, He's creating a strong sense of spiritual connection. He's trying to get them to be more loyal to their ancestry than they are to the alliances that they have made with others around them. Some of the priests are helping the people to understand what is being read. Think of this very much like a Sunday school class where there's teaching so that people can understand. There'll be discussion and questions. Um, The powerful reviewed under renewed understanding of their identity is going to be helpful They're going to reclaim their vision as the people of God and the gap between their behavior currently and the expectations of their behavior by God leads to their grieving. We see that in verse 9. Ezra and Nehemiah encourage them to celebrate, though. It's a new beginning. Don't grieve what you haven't done because we can't change the past. Let's start from here and do better. And let's celebrate that we have rediscovered who we are and who we're supposed to be. In verses 13 through 18, they discover that there's an official holiday in the law for that month, the Festival of Booths. And so they celebrate it. They observe a holiday. The Festival of Booths is also called the Festival of Tabernacles or Sukkot. In verse 17, Joshua, son of Nun, here that is mentioned, is the one who was Moses' aide and successor. This book is saying that they haven't observed this festival since early promised land days. Now, that's not true um, because we're making an erroneous assumption when we read it that way. It has been observed, but the book of Nehemiah is telling us it has not been observed as universally or as solemnly as it is now. So 
We are being more faithful than we've ever been since the early days of inhabiting the promised land. Um, And so they observe it well this time. Moving into verse, into chapter nine, the festival was a way of celebrating the work being completed and of renewing their cultural identity. They're told not to grieve earlier, but now Ezra leads them in some corporate repentance. There's a difference between acts of repentance and hopelessness, grieving in a way that is not helpful. We repent, we receive God's forgiveness, and we move forward. Corporate sin often has multiple generational impact. So Ezra leads them in repenting for what their ancestors have done. Sometimes we resist apologizing and making amends for what people before us did. But that's one of the ways that we make things right, that we stand for justice is to admit when our ancestors have been wrong and commit ourselves to not repeating those mistakes. They need to clear the record and make it right. Ezra's prayer recalls their story as a people. So even as he prays, um, he reminds them who they are. In verse 17, there is a confession about God, that he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love. This was one of the earliest confessions of faith, and you you will hear it echoed repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. In verses 25 and 26, this is the danger of prospering. We can enjoy God's goodness, and that often leads to forgetting God. I have a friend who is Jewish that says she grew up traditionally blessing the food at the end of the meal, whereas we Christians tend to say a blessing at the beginning. Now, in the Jewish law, they would have blessed the meal at the beginning as well. There would have been a a Baruch Hashem Adonai, blessed be the Lord our God for the uh, bounty meal that he is giving us, those kind of things. But she was taught to bless the food at the end of the meal before everyone left the table because it was a reminder not to forget God when things were easy. When you had eaten and had your fill, don't forget the Lord your God. In verse 28, they have acted presumptuously. They did not obey your commands. They have sinned. They've been proud, obstinate, and stubborn. The Hebrew word here is zud, which literally means um, evil up or to boil up. Um, can't read my own writing, but they're Pride and obstinance has bowled up and caused them to act presumptuously, to act on their own judgment in ways that were not what God wanted them to do. In verse 31, we are reminded that God remained faithful. God always remains faithful even when we do not. In verse 33, though they acknowledge that they deserved what has happened, they also ask for mercy and for yet another chance. And God, as we know, is the God of second, third, fourth, fifth chances when our repentance is real. In chapter 10, um, this area actually starts with chapter 9, verse 38. They make an oath and they make it a written agreement. We are now moving from a time period where everything was oral into a time of writtenness. And so they're going to write some of this down. In verses 1 through 27 of chapter 10, we have the names of all of those who signed this oath. Um, Now they're going to separate from the foreigners. In chapter 9, verse 2, there's a gloss mention 
of what Ezra did in at the end of Ezra's book that covers their sending away their wives and children. You can take a look again at this being repeated here in verse 28. They're taking an oath, and there's a curse that comes as a consequence if they don't. Um, one, they're not supposed to intermarry. This is their recommitment to the law. And two, they are not going to trade on the Sabbath day. And three, they're going to observe Sabbath years. So they're going to have a crop hiatus to allow the land to replenish and stay fertile. And they're going to cancel debts. And then the fourth commitment they make is to support the temple with their money, with their tithes, not only of coinage, but of the crops of their field. The people tithed to the Levites in their local communities. Those Levites then brought a tithe of that to Jerusalem. Um, This is very much like our denominational structure where churches give to our districts, our districts give to the conference, the conference gives to the global church. Um, The temple, despite being paid for by Persia, would have owed taxes on its existence and operation. This was a way of keeping the conquered people subservient, even though they were given some freedoms. It was a reminder of where the real locus of power was. Like, we're giving you some more freedoms than some of the empires before us, but don't you ever forget that you're still under the thumb of the Persian Empire. Marriage often involved the transfer of property. Um, So intermarriage was risky. It risked transferring property to people who would not continue to support the temple and observe the Sabbath resets that were required. In chapter 11, um, Nehemiah turns his attention to repopulating Jerusalem. 10% are chosen to move into the city of Jerusalem, and they're chosen by lots. Casting lots was a traditional way of trying to discern the will of God. They probably took volunteers first, and then cast lots for the rest. Judah and Benjamin are tribes that live nearby. They would have been the ones that were given the territory right there around Jerusalem. Levites are the priest. Um, So what we have here is a combination story and official record. So we're not just being told what happened. We're recording the who's and the what's of it. The king here in verse 23-24, is probably a reference to Nehemiah. He's not a king, but he's the leader or the ruler of an area, which very often got that kind of a title. We talk about King Herod of the Roman Empire. He wasn't really a king either, but he was the acting agent of the king in that area. He's They're referring to him in an official capacity. In chapter 12, verses 1-26, through 26, We get a list of the priests and the Levites. Um, He fills in the gaps from the first migration under Cyrus to his time. Who else has come in the meantime? He's claiming an unbroken line of succession. It's kind of implied here. This is a continuation of authority, and it's an enormous responsibility as well to live into and to live up to what God originally granted them, gave them, and set up as their way of operating. In verses 27 through 43 of chapter 12, we have the dedication of the city wall. In verse 30, the priests purify themselves, and then they purify the people. That very much falls in line with what Jesus taught, to get the log out of your own eye before you go trying to get the speck out of someone else's. 
leaders cannot lead where they have not gone, and they cannot inspire people to do what they are not willing to do themselves. Verse 43, everyone is included in this, including the women and the children, not just the men. And the celebration is noisy. It's loud. In verses 44 through 47, we now talk about the clergy. The Levites, which were a whole tribe of people, and then the priests. The priests were specifically descendants of Aaron. And they, remember Aaron was Moses' brother, and they are just, they are chosen to be the priests working in the temple proper. The rest of the tribe of Levi assisted and supported that work. So there were two categories of ministers at that time, very similar to our United Methodist system of deacons and elders. The temple responsibilities are reviewed, um, and it's important that they they must be good stewards. They must operate honestly and ethically. This is a reform. This is a renewal and a change from how things have been. In chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, the ancient enemies are mentioned from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 6, the Ammonites and the Moabites. Now, the reality is that these people groups have already disappeared before the time that this book was written. Um, But mentioning them is a warning that reflects an attempt to keep their identity unique and pure. Don't compromise. Don't intermarry. Don't intermingle. Don't lose our uniqueness. In verses 4 through 9, Nehemiah returns to the royal court, and things go to pot pretty quickly back in Jerusalem. As soon as the leader is not there, it all crumbles because it was not internalized in the heart of the people. They were doing what they had to do for the governor, not what they had truly bought into. There has to be a way to cast the vision and get it into the hearts of the people. We see this happen over and over and over. A pastor goes to a church. The church thrives under that pastor's leadership. And as soon as the pastor is transferred or leaves for any reason, all that just evaporates. The people could be much more powerful than the leader if they embodied and lived into the vision. Tobiah, we find when um, Nehemiah comes back and has to clean all this up, we find that Tobiah has been given a residence in the temple complex. He shouldn't be living in the temple complex. That was for priests, Um, not even for regular Jewish people. But he's been given a room where the priest should be staying. Um, Nehemiah objects to this um, because it implies that Tobiah is honored and should be listened to. And mm, um, It's a private prayer and meditation space, a place for living when you are serving. We, we worship together. We don't own spaces in the house of God. That's a good reminder for us. Sometimes groups can say, well, this is our space. You, you can't use it. Or why are you changing this? We serve there. We learn there. We worship and we pray there, but we don't own the house of God. Verses 10 through 14, they've also not been operating as they should. So he appoints new officials to oversee this and to do it like they were supposed to. He, You sometimes have to move leaders without a vision and without commitment to the purpose. They sometimes have to be moved out of those leadership positions so that you can move in people who do. And that's what Nehemiah does. In verse 14, he again asks God to remember 
that he's endeavored to be faithful, even if the people resist him. Um, Religious people can be some of the worst about resisting a return to the proper purpose. If we ever raise the issue of what the church really exists to do and the fact that we have slid away from that, some of the most committed regular attenders in church can be the ones who will resist renewing that purpose and moving in that direction the most. We must be like Nehemiah and not like the people. In verses 15 through 22, reform and faithfulness is easier said than done. We gradually slide away from our new commitments back to what is familiar and what is easy. We all know that new habits are hard. Changing a pattern takes great effort and commitment. Um, The Sabbath observant has slidden and leaders have to remain focused on there. Nehemiah has not yet gotten them to be faithful and focused. In verse 21, they stayed by the wall. Here, they're staying outside because they were hoping that they might be allowed in, that there might be room for compromise. They might feel sorry for them. (laughs) Nehemiah drives them away. He threatens to whip them. I'm going to lay hands on you. Um, Or in our uh, modern vernacular, they're going to catch hands if they don't get their stuff and get away from the wall. Stop coming around here on the Sabbath. In verses 23 through 29, we return to this idea of mixed marriages again. The most serious threat to the community survival is thought to be exogamy or marrying outside of their kinship group. Um, and we talked about the reasons for this, the transfer of property, the dilution of commitment, the dilution of their ethnic identity as the people of God. There was particular concern for the next generation, for the children, These would have been the children born to parents, one of whom is Jewish and the other is not, particularly when the mothers were not. Um, And really, they focus on the mothers because if the women were given in marriage, the women would have been leaving and going to the husband's people group. They shouldn't be doing that either. But when a Jewish man took a wife from a foreign people group, the wife came there. And we're finding that those women don't give up their ways of thinking from their previous culture and their previous religion. They then pass on that language and those religious ideas to their children. In particular is the speaking of the Jewish language. Um, If the children don't know the language, they won't understand what's happening in worship. If they don't understand what's happening in worship, they're not going to be committed to it. Um, If they inherit the land of their fathers, but without the deep commitment to and connection to their covenant with God, it endangers their very existence. Um, Remember that intermarriage with foreign women was the demise of King Solomon. In verse 28, um, Nehemiah exiles a guy. He has a line to the enemy. Nehemiah doesn't trust him, and so he just cuts him off from being able to hear any info that he could pass along. In verses 30 and 31, we see the mass divorces, families that are ripped apart, and it annoys me greatly that it's barely mentioned here. Um, They make some difficult decisions trying to preserve their community. Um, We struggle with this. I struggle with this greatly. Um, They have the right motive, 
but I'm convinced they're absolutely wrong in what they do. They should have required those women to convert to Christianity. If you're going to be part of our family, we were wrong. We must be united as a family and united as a people. And they should have been given the choice to either convert or go home. That's not what we see here. We see them simply kicking out all the people. And this reminds me very much of the Hagar and Ishmael story with Sarah and Abraham and their son, um, Isaac, there. And we know that a lot of the animosity that is created by that. So I I think they have the right motive, but the wrong way. They're trying to be faithful in the best way that they know how. Um, And that takes us to the end of the book of Nehemiah. Thank you.